see trees of green Red roses too I see them blue For me and you And I think to myself Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, the Art Box. I am so honored to be in the room with these two women. Jean is going to assist and be a co-host with me today, and we are interviewing Elspeth from the Virgin Valley Heritage Museum. Yeah, and, pleasure to be here. And I'm so happy to be a, a co-host on this particular uh, podcast because Elspeth is one of my heroes. She has done so much, and a lot of what I've done, I have patterned after what she's done. So this is oh, really? it's an honor to be here. Excellent. I didn't, didn't so, know I was making patents. <laughs> so, Elspeth, how long have you lived in Mesquite and been with the Virgin Valley Heritage Museum? We have lived in Mesquite since 2003. Oh, okay. Um, about 20 years. And then I've been with the museum. This will be my eighth year at the museum as, a, as the coordinator. I have to say I've learned more in the last eight years about the history of Mesquite than... The first 17. Oh. <laughs> well, it's fantastic because all the visitors that come into the Heritage Museum learn so much from you. Your, your knowledge of the Virgin Valley is immense. Oh, thank you. It's, it's been a great learning curve as far as that goes. We have some amazing history in the valley, and it comes to life when you start having talking with the visitors that come in because often the items that we have or the artifacts prompt memories and so you always learn just a little bit more about everything. Tell us a little bit about the history of Mesquite in, in a very encapsulated short in a, version. In a nutshell? In a nutshell, yes. Well, in a very small nutshell. Right, They go right. third time as a charm. So Mesquite was first settled in 1880 by a small group that were um, what was called called it was a mission assignment and so there were several families up in and around uh, Santa Clara, St. George, Panaca, uh, Pine Valley were assigned to come to Mesquite and grow cotton in the 1880s. Uh, they were here for two years and in that two years they dug six miles of irrigation canals, cleared the land and we're living under third world conditions as far as, you know, that's the only way to kind of explain it. Uh, they were very isolated, prone to cholera, malaria, heat, water, too much water, sometimes not enough water. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it was uh, quite a challenge. And so after two years, they were exhausted. So they were uh, given the privilege to go go home, which they did. They returned to their own various uh, um, homes, except for the gentries who moved down to Moapa and the Overton Valley and St. Thomas. Then uh, in 1886, Dudley Levitt and his family moved from Bunkerville to Mesquite area, 
And when I say Dudley and his family moved, it was like a village. A village moved because Dudley had five wives and 51 children. Uh, oh, wow. A number of <laughs> older adult children. Mm-hmm. And so when he moved across, he picked up where the first group left off, got the canals cleared and the irrigation canal running and the dam back up and everything was working and he got flooded out so it was one of those things you get flooded out or you move and or you stay and starve and so he moved just a little bit further up the, um, towards a little field in a place called Big Bend and then you can see it uh, if you go the old ride 91 mm-hmm. there's actually a, a farm with a post on the outside that was the area that Dudley moved to with his family then uh, left it open again and then once again in St. George there was a a church called a meeting and that meeting number of families were again called but this time they were called to Bunkerville and they were to shore up Bunkerville's population well they got to Bunkerville and Bunkerville didn't have any room so, so the families stayed with the, the relations basically, and the the husbands or men went across and went to work, and that was in 1894. And they were digging the ditches, and three men came along. One happened to be Captain Smith. Captain Smith asked them, "What are you doing?" And they basically said, "Well, we're going to live here." And uh, he says, "Have you surveyed the land?" And no, they hadn't surveyed, so that's when the Mesquite was officially surveyed. And it was three blocks by three blocks. You can tell your downtown Mesquite if you can turn your horse and cart around in without having to back up. So horse and wagon can turn, and then of course the ditches moved were on either side of it. So they were quite wide, wide roads. So when you're on first north and first south, and you're going, why is this road so wide? Because there's nobody, li- you know, mm-hmm. living on those particular streets. That was part of the downtown area, and that's where Mesquite was basically founded and grew from. You said so. they came to grow cotton, but didn't they also grow grapes? Yes, mm-hmm. very successfully. Thompson Seedless had just been developed and they were growing Thompson Seedless along with um, the Concord, the Muscat, a lot of other varieties. The other varieties were used for for um, basically for medicinal purposes and turned into wine. The Thompson Seedless were turned into grapes and they exported the grapes up and down the I-15 corridor. And it was trade at the beginning. Trade, trade, traded those grapes for winter crops. They would get their potatoes and they'd switch out. So about uh, 50 pounds of grapes would make about 25 pounds of raisins. And you seven days one side, flip them three days the other side, you have raisins. So we have wow. grapes at the museum uh, mm-hmm. that we grow. And uh, as an example. Uh, just after we pick what we want because they're starting to fruit really well I leave them for the birds and what's left is like a, a, a an exhibit you can here's here's what's happened to raisins in the desert you know grapes in the desert so we have some very dried out raisins in the backyard uh, along with pomegranates and cotton which were the first cash crops in the area now you mentioned St. George Mm-hmm. And at that time, of course, they didn't have the road going through the gorge. No. So it was quite an ordeal to go back and forth from Mesquite to St. George, wasn't it? It was a three-day trip. 
Okay. So you would go the old 91 with a, with a wagon. I have to double or triple team going up the um, Highway 91 from Beaver Dam up the hill. That would you'd have to double and triple because that was too hard on the horses to be able to to team them. You'd have two or three teams pulling the freight up, and and, and most of the time they spend the night at the Shivwit Reservation that's at the top of the round the corner mm-hmm. a bit. And then they would make the the rest of the trip to Santa Clara and then on to St. George and Washington. The cotton mill was in Washington. So, and then the return trip was also three days. So basically it would be a week and a half back and forward. So uh, even though it does not appear to be that far, I mean, it takes us 30 minutes in a car, but Mm -hmm. at that time this area was extremely isolated and you were very, had to be strong. Yes, and I'm guessing the road was not that good either. Not the, the best. A no. lot of rocks and uh, <laughs> the, difficult the, areas to go through. The first roads were, well, if you want to go back, the, the original trails through here were like the Spanish Trail, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because the way the ge- uh, geography is formed, it kind of forces everything through Mesquite um, because of the way it's does, um, laid out. But the first wagon trail through here was very rough I mean it was just like and it was there were many roads I have a good friend it's Andrew Jensen who's wanders out in the desert looking for the old roads and what would happen was if this way didn't work then you tried that way if that way was successful you kept going that way but one day that way might get washed out so you turn out having to find a different way so these roads kind of developed over time and they're not necessarily the same but it's it's really interesting how the roads have developed in the area you know it's funny because i've listened to you talk so much about the hardships that the women went through here maybe you could say a little bit about that the women were really tough (laughs) <laughs> they were tough women. Um, I think uh, sometimes when we look at the history books and we just see uh, men representative, we kind of neglect that with every most of those men, there were at least some women supporting them, especially in our community where it was based on family. The, the Mesquite in the beginning was always a family <coughs> community. And so oftentimes the men were away driving cattle or in this particular case, they were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They could be serving missions for up to two years in foreign countries, which left the women at home tending the children and providing for them. So if you can imagine wash a laundry taking 10 hours, it would start at about five or six in the morning and you wouldn't be done until about eight or nine at night by the time you'd finished doing your laundry. It's not like I'll throw it in the washing machine, then put it in the dryer, and oh, that was hard work. It was back-breaking work. We've actually got a new display at the museum that shows uh, pictures of early laundry, and it was it was a family affair. There's a one particular photo we've got is the Earl family who lived over in Bunkerville, and it's all the women in the family scrubbing in scrubbing buckets, and uh, it's it's eye-opening because we we just take for granted what we have today and not only that they were living in this world where they were completely dependent upon themselves so they grew their own food 
um, nearly every family had a cow. And being dependent upon themselves and taking care of their own families, they built a really solid community where they did, where they were able to work with each other. It wasn't only people of the same faith, but it was people just living in the desert. And it was, you just had to, you didn't, the only way to survive was to know what everyone was doing and make sure they were okay. So yeah, there were some really wonderful women. I think uh, Martha Cox comes to mind always as, as a 15 year old. She, she lived in St. George with her family. Martha Cox was different from the other members of her family. Her other members of her family were thought work needed to be physical and so when Martha sat there reading a book they would go oh she's so lazy or and so they really would make her life miserable. Martha one of the jobs Martha had to do was uh, weave her own clothes so she had to make her own clothes. At that time, there, it was kind of a two-dress thing. You had your good dress that you that you would make for the year, and then you had last year's dress, which became your work dress, and you always put an apron over it. Well, Martha was in the process of making her cloth to make her new dress, and her brother says, nope, you're coming out and you're going to be the cook for the for the roundup this year, which meant Martha did not have the opportunity to make herself a new dress. And she's 15 years old. It made quite the impression on her. So, but she followed her brother's directions. Was the cook for the year. And when she came back, she was put in a position where she didn't have a new dress. She had to wear her old dress. Well, her old dress embarrassed her so much that if she wore it to a function or a dance or to church or any kind of social gathering, she turn it inside out because the inside of the dress was better looking than the outside of the dress. Uh, so with that embarrassment, she decided that uh, <clears throat> she didn't like her family very much at that point. So she decided that she would get married because that was one of the options that was available to to leave your family. Otherwise, you stayed with your family until uh, until they said otherwise. She married into a polygamous family, the uh, Isaiah Cox family. And at that time, she was the third wife of the group. Isaiah was probably quite a character, but in her journals, she doesn't mention him too much. But she respected the oldest woman in the marriage. She became very close with her. The second lady in the marriage, well, loved to do the things that Martha didn't. Like, she loved handiwork. She loved all this other things and and then there was Martha who always wanted to be a teacher so both the what I guess you loosely term sister wives said okay we can we can help you with that we'll take care of your children we'll make sure that and so Martha ended up teaching um, got her credentials her first assignment was in Panaka and Panaka I guess was a little rough mining town and the kids had driven out three or four teachers before her and she went in there and um, the first day of school she had pretty picked out who the bully was and kind of knew her students. And she took one look at the bully and said, OK, it's a little bit chilly in here. I think we need to burn some wood. And she pointed to the spanking plank, basically, and said, oh, why don't you break that up and put it in the fire? And then she kind of eyeballed him and said, we're not going to have any trouble this year, are we? And he said no. They went home, the kids, and told their mums and dads exactly what the teacher had done. And the, the, the families were beside themselves because they had no idea how she was going to control that class. That was one of the best classes that came out of that school at that time because there was that mutual respect between student and, and 
teacher that didn't exist before. But Martha Cox, her name pops up all over this area. She taught in Mesquite, she taught in Bunkerville. In Bunkerville, she had children living with her. Her, her children were living with her in Bunkerville. And uh, they were building a school-slash-church rock building. And they were looking for donations for it. And so Martha looked at it and donated a month's salary to that. And by her example, the people who had more than what Martha did, because she wasn't comfortable, you know, she was pretty poor, followed her example, basically, and said, well, if Martha can do it, we can do it. And so that's how the funding was got for that first rock school that they built over in Bunkerville. But like I say, she taught here, she taught in Overton, when she taught in um, Longsdale, they didn't want a Mormon polygamist wife teaching in Logandale, so she had to fight the, the town council to be accepted as a teacher. And then when they accepted it, she was well received. You know, she would, it was a fight for her to, to, but her love was teaching. Her love was always children. So, but she's just one example of many as far as that goes. Well, I think one of the other examples would be um, of the lady who's on the statue at City Hall, and I'm sure people would like to hear a little bit more about that. Mary Jane, Mary Jane Abbott. Now, her story is really good. Um, she married William Elias, and that came about. William Elias always loved her from when she was really young. He he knew from an, when they were quite young that they were going to be together. Uh, Mary Jane's father was Dudley Levitt, one of, one of the 51 children. And Dudley was taking his uh, freight up north, and he was on the, on the 91, going on that stretch I was telling you about that needed to double team and triple team. Yeah. Well, William was there also freighting, and he said, may I borrow your team so we can get them up, there, up the hill? And he said, by all means. And uh, so William assisted, and then Dudley says, well, if there's anything I can ever help you with, let me know. And he said, well, there is something you can help me with. I want to marry your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and Dudley says, well, you might as well have her for what she's worth. You know? <laughs> so that is how William and Mary Jane ended up getting married. Now, they, they lived in, most of the time, Dirt floors, rock building. In they started in Beaver Dam, Bunkerville. When they got to Bunkerville, they built an, another house. Um, when I say house, it's one room, <laughs> adobe, dirt floor. When they and they started having children. Now they shared their home with whoever needed to share. So Mary Jane was open to having company. She shared it with uh, Rose Lynch, who who married a knight. She shared it with, uh, who was the other family? The Abbott family had stayed with them for two years. And what they would do is just curtain down the middle and one family would have one side and the other family would have the other side. But they worked together a lot just so that just make things work. And so Mary Jane was known for her skills as a midwife. Um, she birthed many babies in the area. She's known for her skills as far as being her nursing skills, although she she would sit with people when they were sick and if they needed help. One of the things, uh, in 1904, they moved here to Mesquite, and that's the house that's being renovated across from the Maverick. The gentleman that's doing that is so excited because he's pulled everything down to the studs, and apparently the original adobe brick work is showing up and there's oh. arches and all sorts in that work 
So anyway, he's he's working on that. Back to the story when Mary Jane moved to Mesquite with her husband William, they had um, don't quote me on this one about nine kids, and um, of those nine children, their house because William was the bishop, he was a lay bishop, which meant he was responsible for the congregation in the area and didn't uh, but had maintained his own life um, living. He was also a justice of the peace. And so that also meant that if there was anyone official, government-related, they would always stay at their house. So their house became known as the Abbott Hotel, basically, as a now, result. was this still a one-room at this point, or had no, it been no, built they, on? No, no, they had built a nice, substantial... That's the house that they call the Abbott House. It's across from the Maverick. Yes. It was two-story. That Yes, by this point, they had nine children <laughs> and a huge kitchen and... Uh, and flooring, so so they were in a good position. The Abbots have always been able to, um, let's see, they had their own milking cow plus a huge garden, so they were self-sufficient. They were always self-sufficient. And one of the things that Mary Jane used to do is she'd never turn her anyone away. At lunchtime, there could be up to 54 people for lunch that she would be feeding. And it was always like, it is what it is. You're more welcome to share it, even if it was just beans. It was, you're welcome to come in and share it with us. And there's a story that one time they were sitting around dinner table and the, the kids were talking about a newcomer that came to town and they were living in a, basically in a shack. The husband had gone off to work in the mines and it was leaking and they just had a new baby and they were on the point of starvation. And Mary Jane just looked at the, one of the kids and said, well, go and get her. She can stay here. And so she was brought into the home. The, the, the lady was brought into the home with her baby. She was there for three months while she recovered her health. The baby's health, too, was suffering as a result. And then when she went back to her little home, which was, you know, the, the shack with the dirt floor, every month thereafter there was a, a care package on her front step. That would have come from the from the Abbott family. Years later, this young man came up to Mary Jane and gave her a big hug. And Mary Jane gets sort of looked at him and said, "Hmm, <laughs> didn't quite know what to make of it." And he said, "Thank you. You saved my life when I was a baby." <gasps> so that's that was the, you know, that was the type of person she was. She she would do it anyway. She wasn't doing it to save the the kid's life. She was doing it because she knew that she lived that life. That was her. It was said on the on the um, photograph that you did for us, Steve, that her heart was as big as the hole outside, or something close like that. Her her heart was as big as the 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 whole world. That's right. So that that's Mary Jane. There are many. Wherever you have a good man working and everybody admires them, you know there is a good woman behind them. And um, Camilla. Barnum is another one. Camilla Barnum married Jack Hardy. Jack Hardy lived across the street from Camilla Barnum. Camilla Barnum lived in the rock house with her with her with her mom, and that's the building that's on the corner next to the Relief Society house now in the 1880s. But this was a little bit further on, the 1920s, when Jack and Camilla were went to school together. They fell in love, and Jack had invited Camilla to go to a dance. That particular day, when he went to pick her up, he looked through the little glass trim and she noticed that Camilla was there just staring into the eyes of another man and she couldn't he could he just got madder than mad and walked away and uh, next day she goes why didn't you pick me up for the dance and uh, he goes well 
there was a man here. And she says, well, yes, that's my father. Because her, <laughs> her father was, was Aishel Barnum. Aishel Barnum actually lived in Cedar with another wife, and he would come and visit on occasions. So, that, so when he saw a man in the house, he immediately jumped to the wrong conclusion. But not long after that, <laughs> they, they got married and were married 60 years. Camilla, when you see her picture, it's the epitome of elegance. She is a beautiful-looking woman. When you read her journals, she is down-to-earth and almost bawdy. I mean, she's, she's just real plain-talking, and and she calls it how she sees it, which is awesome because you, you get the feel for how life really was when you start reading the journals of the people that lived here. And can people access those journals at the Heritage Museum? They certainly can. I mean, they're available online. You can, if um, we have a catalog that you can, if you go through the city website, you can pull up our catalog, which gives you all the, as much of the catalog as we've scanned and put online. We're probably 85% there of getting everything online that can be read. So, uh, yes, it's, it's, we've worked really hard at that for the last eight years. <laughs> I think that. The legacy that's going to is being left behind is all the work that you've done that people can access. We do probably need a primer on how to do that. It's a work in progress. I mean, I I'm hoping that whoever replaces me is a little more savvy when it comes to the technical side of life. <laughs> we just, yeah, we just had uh, Vanessa Gubbard come over from the library to explain to us just the part about how to use the resources of the library. And that's not easy either if you haven't done it before. But the, there are gold mines, and what you are sitting on is a gold mine. Mm -hmm. We are, uh, over, I've noticed over the last years that we have more researchers looking at the information in the, in the catalogs, and then they'll get back to me with, I saw this here, is there anything else? You know, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, like the Dixie Project, we've been assisting with their history plaques that they're going to put out on the walks. There's another lovely lady from Utah who is, her father worked on the gorge uh, next year. 2024 is the 50th anniversary of the freeway going through the gorge. Mm -hmm. And her dad worked on that with a number of people here and, and around. And so she's doing interviews and we were able to assist her with that. She's in the process of writing a book because she's wanted to do a program like televise it but there was just too much information so she says we should write a book instead oh, I, I think that would be a really good Elspeth if you could say something to people about the museum I know you've talked to so many people is there anything you want to leave behind for posterity oh that is tough um, just it always reminds me of an iceberg the museum is an iceberg. The, the top third you see, um, with me running around the town with my head chopped off half the time, but all the community efforts and contacts that we've made over the years is the top third. The real work is underneath, and it still needs a lot of work. The uh, um, I've worked on cataloging, and whoever takes over from me will be working on cataloging. It's, it's job security. Once you've got the catalog, considered done like everything is numbered and in its right place um, then it'll be the research you'll go back and you research all these items and and um, I think 
what I would like to say is we need to tell the stories as they are and not adulterate them. They, they, are, they are the stories. Um, each family is entitled to their own interpretation of how they visualize the history. So when you tell that story, you just have to say this is how this family felt about it. Or, you know, th this is what I can prove happened, but this is what these people believe. Mm -hmm. So it's still part of the fabric of the area. And that's where the folk stories come in. Like you were talking about Bunkerville. How did Bunkerville get its name? Mm -hmm. Bunkerville is the heart of the community. Now, we don't look at Bunkerville like that, but Bunkerville is how this whole area started. With Now, Edward Bunker was a bishop of a, a congregation in Santa Clara, and he felt there was a an ordinance in practice that was called the um, United Order, which meant a group of people got together and lived a communal lifestyle, putting everything into, basically putting everything into the bucket and then just taking out what they needed. So um, he knew this could work if he didn't have to deal with people moving in and moving out. So he organized a group, and it was mostly family members and Dudley Levitt and his family. To, to, and they spent a year organizing this. And not only did they establish tenants, but one of those tenants was, if this doesn't work for us, this is how we're going to dissolve it, so that it doesn't cause ill feeling. Um, and so basically, on January, I've forgotten this, the first Sunday in January of 1877, they arrived in Bunkerville, and there's a historic mon. Uh, marker there where they actually arrived and stayed until and then they set up their the this com community so they were able to do that simply because when they arrived there was Edward one of his wives and one of his daughters Dudley one of his wives and one of his their daughters and then there were about 17 young men and several older adult men and the purpose was to establish the community so they established the community and every time they went back to Santa Clara for supplies if the land could handle it they would bring back one or two more people so um, and so that's how the community grew after about three years they had discovered that it was not as easy as it it appeared to be and I always joke and say someone kicked someone's car well you know someone got offended <laughs> basically that's how and so they they did dissolve it and as a result um, they blotted the lands um, they drew lots and each person got a, a piece of land then they became responsible for their own well-being each family became responsible for their own, for its own well-being in the meantime, they had put in all their um, irrigation, they cleared the land, they had a dam, they'd um, put in uh, a mill, uh, and there was a water wheel. There was a lot, all the infrastructure was already put in with the um, community lifestyle. And when they did have flooding and emergencies, they were all pretty well tightly related to each other or they married into each other's families that they still all work together anyway. But they that, that was the wise thing was to do that. So so all the spiritual learning, all the physical 
and everything came out of Bunkerville in the beginning. Mesquite was just kind of a five or six random homes. It was not on knolls. <laughs> it was, and those homes were not really what you can, what we think of when we think of homes. They were upturned wagons or boarded tents, or um, just depending what they could, you know, make a house out of. Um, a lean-to survived as a house. Um, I think the rock house, and there was one other rock house uh, that were over here. Um, they don't know who built them, but they were built in 1880. So Bunkerville grew and had the larger population for the longest time. And then, of course, I told you the Mesquite story from 1880 to 1894. Well, I have a question because mm -hmm. I'm still stuck on that woman cooking for 50-some people uh -huh. in a small house. <laughs> well, How in the well, world? Well, her, okay. house, her home wasn't small. When you go down Mesquite Boulevard, uh -huh. the, the house that they're renovating on the right-hand side yes. across from Maverick, okay. that was her home. Right. But, so, but the, her kitchen was yeah. nearly half the bottom oh, floor. Oh, okay. So, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was you, like, uh, how do you do that <laughs> in those days? They, or, or, or the other option is that oftentimes they did cook for big people, a big, large, not big a people, large, large pe groups large of people. Groups. And, and with those um, situations, they'd cook outside and eat outside. Like okay. the, That's why Dutch ovens are so popular that's here. What I, was I mean, wondering. it was. Mm -hmm. It was not like, oh, we do it for, for uh, to celebrate, you know, it's an unusual way to... It, it was the way to cook nearly every day, you know. Um, so they had their bread already made and that kind of thing? Yeah, there was, okay. uh, the bread was a process. Bread yeah. was made the night before. The raising was done overnight. It was cooked mm -hmm. during mm -hmm. the day. I just read that the other day when there was a 12-year-old girl that used to... Her job was to need nine loaves of bread a day. Oh, wow. So she would do that in the evening. Her responsibility was to knead the bread for the next day. And uh, I believe that was Charles Arthur's family. And, of course, he had 13 children. So they, they'd go through <laughs> nine loaves of bread a day. So... So everybody yeah. had a job, and everybody mm -hmm. worked really hard. Mm -hmm. Work was, was the life. I mean, it, there was no shortcuts as far as... Um, oftentimes, though, you could bring family in to help or the young girls would get paid to do housework for someone else, that kind of thing. Um, if uh, there was a widow in, in the community, they would take in laundry or they would do housework or the other option was to teach. There weren't those options. But besides that, if they had property which was left to them by their husbands, they maintained the property as well. So they farmed. <laughs> I mean, so it was, it was, it, you know, it's, we, we kind of forget that the women were doing as much as the men nearly all the time. It's like, we have a picture in the museum of a 1923 basketball team. They're all girls. It's a girls team. And in 1923, I have no idea who they played because there weren't that many all-girl basketball teams in 1923. They probably played Moapa. Anyway, <laughs> when I think about it, but the girls figured that if they had to stomp hay and deal with snakes and work, you know, work the farm, um, they could also play basketball. So there, there, there was a, you don't think about it, but they weren't pressured by city life or expectations of city life um, as far as they didn't have to be prim proper and sit in the dining room and and do needlework. 
they had to do needle there was needlework done but that was like relaxation but the farm the food it was your basic needs that came first mm-hmm. oh you were talking about bunkerville and why is it bunkerville and not levittville yes there, what i heard the story i heard was that a coin was flipped that that's the story <laughs> really but but, but i'm tell i'm telling so i got sidetracked with with okay. how bunkerville got settled bunkerville was actually named for edward bunker okay. in my opinion I believe that was named for Edward Bunker because of the amount of work he put into the organization of it. But the folklore is that the Dudley and Edward flipped a coin. Mm-hmm. Dudley lost, Dudley Levitt lost. But then there is Dudley's revenge. There have always been more Levitts living in Bunkerville than Bunkers. <laughs> <laughs> and then I also heard the other story it was named Bunkerville because the first child born in Bunkerville was a bunker. Okay. Now, those are the three that I'm aware of. There could be more. <laughs> Is it okay to go back and talk a little bit about you? I'd oh. like to talk a little bit about <laughs> yes. you and how you started yes. here. And yes, so I'm more than welcome. Okay, so I'll do that. You have so much knowledge. How did this all begin for you and, and what kind of challenges did you have at the beginning? with okay. just learning so much and cataloging everything. That, I panicked. <laughs> I could see that. I lived in panic for a while. I used to tell people I'd much rather adjust the brakes on my, I was a truck driver, so on the, on the semi and on the trailer than use a computer. Wait, wait, time out. You were a truck driver I, before I, yes, you came? I was 17 years in the commercial industry, uh, commercial really? driving. Wow. So, so started off, uh, yeah, I've, I've <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so that's another little thing. I'll, I'll share that with you. Um, my husband has always worked in the airline industry and at the time he was working for Northwest Orient and Northwest Northwest was going through uh, a bumpy stage and we could see writing on the wall that we felt like they weren't going to be around for much longer and uh, Frank kind of looked at me and says why don't you go and learn to drive a truck and see if we like it (laughs) and uh, of course we I went to learn drive a truck and I must say my truck driving is much better than how I drive my car So I can drive a truck a lot better than I drive a car, <laughs> according to my kids. Anyway, um, yes, we liked it. And I was on the road for over four years. And also I've driven bus, tour buses, shuttles. I started off as a school bus driver because I could take the kids with me. And so so 17 years in the commercial driving. And then it was time uh, to find something that uh, wasn't so hard on my body. And it was just like... My daughter was working at the museum. She was running it at the time. And I said to her, do you mind if I apply for your job? (laughs) And uh, she says, no, but mum, realize that I want the best person to get that position and it may not be you. And I says, okay, no problem. And uh, I'd opened a can of worms for her because I had put in for the position. She could no longer have any say in who got the position because I was related to her sure and and so that's and so they ruled everything out so after a series of interviews they decided that I was the best fit for the job what they didn't realize was I didn't even know how to turn a computer on at that point but <laughs> but my daughter says oh I'll, I'll I'll 
help you, I'll show you what you need to know. And, and that's how it began. And in the beginning, I had one co-worker, Pete Clayton, who had been there since the beginning of the, they were using Past Perfect at the time, their catalogue system. And he introduced me to it and taught me how to use it. And and I just, I went from there. And then we changed out to a simpler form, which is the catalogue system, which is really good. Uh, it's Hub Catalog It. Really simple to operate and correct your mistakes it's just like I, I would be literally in fear that if I touched it or did something I would make a mistake and it would blow the whole system up <laughs> just but then I realized that's why we have IT and they can fix anything <laughs> and they can so after figuring that out then I, I basically followed the mission statement this is the mission statement that uh, that my daughter wrote and the mission statement of the the museum is to deepen the understanding of the community and visitors about the virgin valley specifically mesquite bunkerville and southern nevada and strive to bring the history of uh, life through collections exhibits special events educational opportunities and we also and this should is is probably more important than the last sentence we also strive to preserve and protect our local history as far as that goes they they say that history is written by the winners but i personally think the history just you need to write your own history everybody should sit down and write their own history because who wants to who wants someone else telling their story that's and so it's a really good point so with with the museum i just try to tell the story of the valley i don't embellish i don't do anything else i just i read the fact that well it's not necessarily a fact but i read what's written and then that's what i say i don't i have opinions but i don't put opinions on what's in the building that the opinions are my own and what I would like to see. Oh, you, what was? Go back to what you were talking about. Well, I was just thinking that you're looking at a lot of journals and letters and trying to pull all this history together, including the artifacts. It's overwhelming. So, yes. um, you wear three hats. Uh, well, I've been wearing three hats, um, and I, I jump around in those positions. Mm -hmm. Like the community, I, I spent a, um, a couple of years working on building the community. Um, the museum and community adventures and um, opportunities and activities and being involved in the different organizations in, in and around. Jean's one that I've <laughs> worked with. I don't go out of my way to go to the organizations, but when the organizations come, because I don't have time to do mm -hmm. that uh, but I don't mind when someone comes and says can you talk for us or can you do this for this you know or can we have this information or, or that information um, the second one is the the artifacts and the collections and and the preservation that the artifacts need to be stored numbered everything should have a home I've been working at that we're now creating collections so that everything can be seen because we have 4,200 items on the catalogue system. Oh, wow. But not all those items can be seen at, at one given time. So we've started to develop collections so that we can rotate the collections through the museum. So when people come in that visit with family, they're seeing something different every time. Well, not every time they come in, but once a year that will change. At least something will change in the building. And then the third thing is the, the visual world that we... Well, the virtual world that we live in, the online content. We do... Uh, 
I've been working with the the Facebook and then uh, virtual tour, which which is kind of new. Uh, we're working on that. All the other aspects that go with an online presence. It's it's uh, it's it's tremendous. What I see on Facebook now, there's a couple who post regularly, and I can see exactly where they got their information from because it came from the museum, um, <laughs> <laughs> from the catalogue, and and and. Um, in fact, Sunny will come in and and just say, "Oh, what have you got on this or that?" You know, as far when he's looking for things to do. We also have original documents, um, not a lot, and maybe not of value to anyone else, but they are of value to the community. Those need to be treated correctly for them to be able to last the generations. Well, but we're very fortunate in that we have the firehouse, which is a building within a building, and so my. Paper and media is all archived in there, where I can control the temperature and the 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 humidity and that's and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's 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 been a really awesome experience actually. It's just like I'm so glad that I was being able to do this for the last eight years. It was a growth. I mean, I I felt like a little baby egg in the beginning and. Now I feel like I might be a bird. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your service to the Virgin Valley. It's amazing what you've done. I know a lot of people are going to be really sad that you're leaving. They'll miss you terribly. But we're happy for you because you have new things on your horizon. Want to tell us what you and your husband are getting ready to do? Frank and I are uh, getting ready to um, serve a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're going to be and I quote, office specialists. So I'm very grateful for my last eight years of learning how to turn yes. a computer on <laughs> in the Vancouver uh, British Columbia mission. And so basically my responsibilities will be taking care of, well, Frank and I will be taking care of the temporal needs of the missionaries. You've seen the little guys with their name badges. We'll be taking care of their housing and their vehicles and making sure they're in healthy living conditions. So my, one of my jobs will be to go around and do the white glove test. Mm-hmm. I, I, want, I want to get some. They couldn't be in better hands. Well, thank That's you. That's right. I appreciate that. I, I don't think anyone will believe you were a truck driver. Right. No, there's a lot of things. I, I started my work career um, when I was 18 years old. I figured I could fix the world. Um, my oldest brother was had been hospitalized with meningitis for many and had uh, brain damage wow. as a result. And this position, I left school one day, started as a nurse aide the next day, started training as a psychiatric nurse three months after that. Wow. And for five years I worked as a psychiatric nurse because, you know, I can fix my brother. <laughs> mm. oh, I was very naive. Um, but did you help him? Were you able to help him? No, his his damage was permanent. Oh, that's but true. I'm, so, I'm sure you were able to help others, though. Over the years, yes, yeah. yes, I was. I'm still using the skills mm-hmm. that I learned as a psychiatric nurse to this very day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like it's one of those. I used them when I was truck driving. Mm-hmm. So, um, when I was 24, I actually I served a mission in in Christchurch, New Zealand. And I came home from my mission. I'm going, okay, what am I going to do now? <laughs> Twiddle my thumbs. I worked as a, in an office of a, con- a contractor's uh, company. And then I ended up in the New Zealand temple as what was called the temple, ma- uh, the clothing matron. 
So I took care of all the clothes in the in in the building. Wow. So because everybody that goes into the temple wears white clothes, well, mm-hmm. if you don't bring white clothes, you can you can hire white clothes to wear, and it was my job to keep take care and keep them in good repair. And that's when I met Frank. Um, I was coming out of the temple one day. He was coming in. And, we looked at each other. The world stood still, and there you go. We both knew so it was love at first sight. It was all no at first. <laughs> yes, we did know immediately. Yeah. We both knew, but it took another two years before anything happened. So That's we ran great. out of money and got married, and then I immigrated to the states. Oh, and this was in New Zealand. New Zealand, then. Mm-hmm. Okay, this so, was 40, so forty-two years ago. In. An LDS situation in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I came, I came up. I came into the country on Halloween. I just became a citizen a year ago. Um, and you're going to Vancouver. And then, of course, we, uh, I spent the first. I've always worked, so I worked in health-related fields. So I, um, and then we started having children. And by the time I we had Jacob, he was number four. I, I couldn't do both. I couldn't work in, because Frank and I never did babysitting. We always did the back-to-back. And so he would work one shift, I worked an opposite shift, and we'd fury the kids between the two. I don't know how we did it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we'd ferry the kids backwards and forwards, you know, and nobody got any sleep. Anyway, <laughs> and um, then when the last three came along, that's when I started bus driving. I'd been off work or not working. But for, when you were bus driving, how did you? How were the kids taken care of? Oh, I brought them with me. Oh, you brought them on the truck? That, uh, on, on the, the bus. bus. Oh, on the bus. Oh, so, oh that's right. Okay, yes. school bus. I would yeah. take the kids with me. It was really, it was such a fun job because I drove for 50 miles mm-hmm. to this pickup on my route. Then I oh, drove wow. another 50 miles to get pick up the kids and drop them off. Uh-huh. And then I drove back to the shed. And so I, I had all this time where mm-hmm. I didn't have any kids on board. And in the afternoon, I'd do the reverse the reverse and my kids were there was only about seven of them we were in a what's called a short bus but they weren't um, they were normal kids but they were going to an academy downtown that their parents were paying big bucks for and they thought shut up was a swear word so, <laughs> so I'm going like well this is a piece of cake you know <laughs> and they would play with my kids while we were going you know so I had three with me when I was um school bus driving and then I moved on to shuttle driving and then uh, tour bus and it wasn't until I got here to Mesquite that I did the truck driving so but but five of our seven kids graduated from Virgin Valley High School oh really Mm mm-hmm wow so you had seven Mm mm-hmm wow and a bus. <laughs> and a bus. <laughs> and a busload, bus yes. <laughs> and Frozen was very popular. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, was, that's right, because in those days you couldn't just put a movie on and have a kid watch their no, their movie no, on no, their little no, we, screen. We, we yeah. put a tape in and uh-huh. the kids in the back, we got, turn it off. <laughs> kids up the right. front. Because I had yeah. from kindergarten through sure. you know, full age. Um, 
So. 52 miles, that's a lot of driving. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, over 100, yeah. Yes. And that was in Minnesota and any weather. Oh, okay. so. In the snow. Oh. In the snow and the ice. Your story is as amazing as the stories that you were telling. <laughs> that's true, isn't it? Yeah, Geraldine yeah. keeps telling me that I should... And like and and now I say it and I haven't done it. You know the the you know who right. you want to write your own history. Write your oh story. yes, yeah. yes. write your own story. Who you know or someone else will do it for you and you, you may not like it. You have a little over a month to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's true because she is part of the history of Mesquite now. Absolutely. Oh yes. dear. We'll see. <laughs> but you you're more than the history of Mesquite. You're the history of all that you have done yeah that's true yes that's one of the the truck driving thing is one of the things because often when i pull into a dock and take the papers up to the the management or the dock supervisor they'd always tell me um we need the driver to bring that to us (laughs) (laughs) it's like because i was just too nice But I've got truck driving stories too, which are really cool. Do you? Can yeah. you? Sh- can you share? Oh, I'll, one I'll, with I'll, us one story. So uh, one of my best stories is when you're on the road. You, it's very lonely, and I was in Kentucky of all places it had pulled into a truck stop and I got out and I must have been looking really morose when I sat down to eat dinner all by myself in this little diner and this little troll of a man came up he was um, I mean he looked like he lived under a bridge he was he was just grubby dirty and sat, sat down in front of me and started to talk to me and I'm going like hmm how do I get out of this discreetly without offending the man? Because here he is telling me about his wife and his girlfriend, and they live together when he's not with them, and oh. he's been on the road for 10 years, and <laughs> he was sharing all of his lifetime experiences. And then he just sat there and he looked at me, and he says, you know, we all get sad on the road sometimes. And yeah. he, he had spent that time talking to me cheering me up just being mm-hmm. a you know someone to talk to mm-hmm. like and I just like I really appreciated it after back I realized then you do not judge a book by its mm-hmm. cover I mean yeah you just, yeah you don't I mean especially when it comes to the truck drivers out there I could pull into a truck stop and get out of my truck and if I needed it I could ask the truck driver next to me can you walk me in and they would do that, you know, as far as that goes. It's like the, I was their grandma. <laughs> you know? I wasn't the, which was, was an advantage because I was an older woman in a truck. And so I didn't have some of the problems that the younger women have. But I always felt safe and protected on the road. I was just the way it is. But not everybody feels that way. Thank you so much, Jean and Elspeth, for coming in today. And we got to hear a little bit more about the history of women in this area. That was quite interesting. And thank you. It was just touched on the surface of what you know. You've shared with us over time these vignettes on different women. has been remarkable. Well, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. 
To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on the art box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association. <laughs>